Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. From Burkina Faso to Mali to Niger to Chad, the Sahel region has experienced a turbulent decade shaped by insurgencies, terrorism, constitutional and military coups, and other turbulent political and social events, and states are struggling to honor and uphold the social contract. The Sahel is also grappling with the pressures of climate change. A number of international actors, including France, the United Nations, Russia's Wagner Group, and foreign terrorist groups, all operate in that space. The level of insecurity in the Sahel, however, is alarming and worrisome. The international effort to fight Islamist insurgency and militancy has not met the expectations of the Sahelian populations. The current approach to address insecurity, which is military-centered, has not restored calm and peace to the region. The jihadist insurgency continues to gain new ground. Communal violence is on the rise, and security, development, and good governance remain elusive. We also have noted high levels of erosion of public confidence in governance across the region. Due to tensions between the military-led government of Mali and the French government, France will be withdrawing its troops and military resources from Mali. Considering how involved France has been across the region, one wonders about the future of counterterrorism in the Sahel. France has also built a coalition of Western powers and other donor countries to support international stabilization efforts in the Sahel, including the Sahel Alliance. The United States is a key contributor to this security and economic development initiatives. Now, as these countries focus their resources on the war in Ukraine, they may reduce their contributions to the Sahel, which could further destabilize the region. Russia also has interests in the region. The Wagner Group, as I said earlier, a private military company, is a close security partner of Mali. It is unclear at this time how the war in Ukraine will affect their commitment. In the meantime, we ask a few questions, including, is it time to adjust the international approach, which is military-centered and focused on governance reforms, public service delivery, and fiscal transparency? Is it time to expand the international partnership framework, which is state and government-centered, to include greater participation of civil society organizations? Joining me on Into Africa today is Nathaniel Kinsey-Powell. Nathaniel is a West and Southern Africa analyst at Oxford Analytica. He's also an honorary researcher at Lancaster University's Center for War and Diplomacy in the United Kingdom. He is the author of France's War in Chad, Military Intervention and Decolonization in Africa, published last year by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you so much. We're happy to be here, Bemba. Thank you, Nathaniel, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. You have been studying the Sahel for a number of years now. So what is developing there and coming into being is not new to you. What is your assessment? Can you please tell our audience what is happening in the Sahel? Well, there's a lot of fluidity at the moment. France announced that it was withdrawing its forces from Mali last month. And this came as the kind of culmination of months or arguably even years of kind of deteriorating relationships between Paris and Bamako. The kind of trigger for this was the expulsion of the French ambassador. But there's a lot of, I think, blame on both sides of this. 
But the French are pulling out of Mali. And what that means is that Mali no longer has the presence of uh, major military interventions specifically dedicated to fighting jihadist groups. And now the French are redeploying to neighboring Niger and possibly further afield to some of the coastal West African countries in order to shore up their defenses in order to contain a possible spread of jihadist groups beyond the Sahel. And I think there's a lot of questions about the extent to which they will actually be able to positively contribute to these efforts. The other question is the extent to which their now only major counterterrorism partner in the region, Niger, is actually stable enough to maintain that relationship with France. And if there is a, for example, a coup in Miami or even major political disturbances, if France would be able to maintain its presence there as well. And this raises a whole number of questions about the political evolution in the region and France's future there as well. Very good. So we'll come back to France in a little bit. But can you tell us a little more, where does this started? I mean, the conflict in Sahel is widespread. It's pretty much throughout the entire region. Even if we go as far east to Sudan, it's not quiet over there either. So what are the drivers of this conflict? There was a time where Mali, for instance, was considered a bastion of democracy, at least was an emerging democracy. How did we get here? If you really want to focus on structural factors, you can really go back a long time, you know, to colonialism or even before. But I think if you want to go back the last 10 years or so, what we've had since the mid-2000s or, or even a bit later is a real crisis in the legitimacy of different regional states. There's a lot of factors that are kind of driving that. Some are related to kind of the global economic downturn that didn't really recover in a particularly beneficial way to the global south after 2008, or rather it benefited some countries over others. Others relate to the fallout from the war in Libya, which led to the movement of armed groups from southern Libya or other parts of Libya into other parts of the region, particularly northern Mali, in which Tuareg armed groups in Libya moved into Mali for a number of reasons during this conflict in 2011, military intervention there. They already had kind of separatist leanings, and they saw this as an opportunity to launch a rebellion. And this follows a cycle of rebellions in Mali's north, because the country since the end of colonialism, or even during colonial rule, had a very clear kind of inequalities between the south and the north. And these inequalities were economic, they were cultural, they were religious. And the north has consistently, since the end of colonialism in 1960, felt that it hasn't received its fair share of investments. And this has led to a number of armed rebellions. And in 2011, the Tuareg groups in the north formed the National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad. Azawad is the name given to that region. The aspiration is that Azawad would be the independent state of kind of northern Mali. And they launched a rebellion. But quickly, this rebellion was overtaken by a number of jihadist groups who saw this as a prime opportunity to seize territory, to recruit, to expand their range of operations. And within a matter of, of weeks or months, the MNLA, which is not a jihadist organization, was kind of sidelined by jihadist groups, which then took over most of northern Mali in 2012. This situation actually remained rather static for a number of months. But when jihadist groups started to move into southern Mali, and there's a big debate about why they did this or where they were actually heading, whether they're heading to Bamako or not, this triggered a French military intervention, which had the objective of removing all jihadist control from northern Mali, at least in the urban areas. And within a matter of weeks, swept northern Mali, especially the urban areas of, of jihadist control, and pushed those groups they didn't defeat outright, pushed them into the desert or into rural areas where they posed less of an immediate threat to state authority. But as we all know, that they weren't defeated militarily and they were able to, over time, continue to recruit and build up their guerrilla warfare capacity and stage a comeback. And essentially take control over areas in, in northern Mali and also now central Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, and now it's become a full-blown regional series of insurgencies in which jihadists kind of form the organizational core. But 
you can also add to that a number of non-state armed groups that are not themselves jihadists, but are part of this whole ecosystem. And the French military intervention then expanded in 2014 to cover five Sahelian countries, so Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad, where its headquarters was located, with the object of trying to contain the spread of these groups while national militaries built up their strength in order to effectively combat them on their own. As we've seen over the past seven years or so, this mission hasn't particularly succeeded. The French haven't been able to effectively defeat or contain these groups in any appreciable way. And the level of violence has actually expanded and gotten worse. couple follow-up questions on what you just said, Nathaniel. One is on this terrorist group, this insurgency. Where did they come from? And how were they able to spread across the Sahel, at least to Burkina Faso and other countries, when you consider the strong presence of France and other military units from the region? I think the first thing to note is that we tend to link the words jihadism and terrorism together as if they, they're meaningful. It's much better to understand these groups as anti-state insurgencies with the same kind of political dynamics and military dynamics you have in any other kind of insurgency against state authority. Of course, it includes a level of political radicalization and extremism and colossal levels of violence at times, but also state actors and security forces are doing the same thing. In fact, in Mali, at least until last year, the Malian security forces were the biggest preferers of violence against civilians in Mali, not jihadist groups, which then feeds into recruitment. Now, I think one of the questions is, how do these groups spread? First of all, there's some migration of individuals who may not be from the region, so from North Africa, particularly stemming from the jihadist insurgencies in the 1990s in Algeria. But also the vast majority of individuals in these jihadist groups are locals uh, or from the region. I mean, there are jihadist groups in Mali are generally Malians, or if they're in Burkina Faso, they're generally Burkinabe. And the question is, why do people join these groups? All the research to date suggests that people aren't really joining these groups for ideological reasons. You obviously have an ideological core, you have a core that is very dedicated to the kind of jihadist ideology, but the rank and file are joining for either sometimes because of coercion or intimidation, but also out of a sense of ethnic grievance, the grievance that their communities are being targeted by states or state security forces and jihadist groups are offering to protect them. There's also underlying series of local conflicts, particularly over access to grazing routes or even water resources or customary uh, political authority. And jihadist groups have only been able to succeed where they've been able to tap into these local conflicts and essentially take a side and offer their alliance and services in exchange for support and recruits. The only way to really conceptualize the different jihadist groups on the ground is some series of political coalitions between local leaders and communities and a kind of a core of jihadist militants, which together form the basis of particularly al-Qaeda's broad series of affiliated groups called the Group for Support for Islam and Muslims, which is the Arabic abbreviation is JNIM. And they're the main jihadist force in much of Mali and big parts of Burkina Faso. You also have the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, and they're more ideologically cohesive and, and more violent in a lot of ways. The two groups are competing in the same way that Al-Qaeda and ISIS compete in other parts of the world, including violently. And even relatively recently, there's been a series of major clashes between JNM and ISIS. But I think the best way to describe these are, are rural insurgencies that are a series of political coalitions linked to jihadist elements that are targeting not just the state, but at the local levels are asserting local claims for protection or access to resources. These kind of lines of political contestation they intersect in different ways. But the national level conflict between jihadist groups and the nations in which they're fighting don't always intersect with the local level conflicts that are also a major part of the violence that most people are experiencing every day. This kind of speaks to the failure of the French military effort, because the French military effort is exclusively counter-terrorist. 
they're targeting jihadist leaders that they've identified as being particularly dangerous and trying to kill them. And they've been relatively successful in doing this. But this hasn't seemed to have altered the dynamic on the ground very much and hasn't altered the political calculus of local communities who are subjected to lots of state violence and are looking for protectors. And the jihadists are providing that protection. Very simply, the basis for the expansion of jihadist groups is their ability to tap into local grievances, either against other communities or more especially the state and the violent actions of regional states, not just Mali, but also Niger and Burkina Faso. So if we understand correctly, a lot of these elements of these insurgencies are actually fighting the state and they have grievances that are anchored in the failure of social contract and bad governance. Would that be correct uh, assessment? Yeah, I think that's more than half of it. That's not all of it. That's the the main outline, absolutely, is the grievances that local communities have against abusive state authorities and the way that jihadist groups kind of have exploited these grievances and exacerbated them in a lot of ways. But there's also local conflicts that the jihadist groups have also inserted themselves into that are only obliquely related to state authority. And that's conflicts over things like grazing routes or food resources or water resources or the political authorities granted to customary leaders and that sort of thing. This, of course, then generates ethnic conflict as well. So the conflicts themselves become highly ethnic in nature, and which then leads to ethnic stigmatization, particularly against Fulani, who are often herders and are accused of being collaborators with jihadist groups. And therefore, they're victims of fairly high levels of state repression in response or even local vigilante violence. And this obviously fuels large levels of conflict, which rebounds on itself and you kind of have a vicious spiral of which jihadism and jihadists are only a part. Like that's been one of the analytical failures of the French, but also the Americans. There's a tendency to view the violence and insecurity in the region as, as a jihadist problem or a terrorism problem, when, when in fact, it's only one small part of the equation. Very well. So let's talk a little bit about France. France has been the big parrain, if we use the French word. How do you evaluate the relationship of France and those states in the region? Obviously, it's a former colonial power, but the relationship has not particularly been the best. So what the state of the relationship between France and the state in the region, and even the intervention, we've seen a lot of friction. I think the French would like to call it anti-France sentiment. Uh, Africans may define it differently. What's your read of that? It's safe to say that whatever your position is on French neocolonialism, the French would not be involved in this region in any substantive way if there was no colonial history behind it. All the countries in the Sahel that we've been discussing so far are former French colonies. Obviously, the big exception here is Nigeria, which we haven't talked about. That creates a whole set of not just historic linkages and a kind of ideological attachment that French policymakers have to this region, but also there's a lot of linkages between elites on both sides. A lot of African leaders have studied in France. The ruling classes of a lot of these countries have close ties to France, particularly older generations. It's a relationship that goes beyond just what you might call one of, of domination and you know, subjection to French authority. The flip side of that is the level of what you might call the kind of the classic neocolonial accusation is that you know France is there for its economic interest. And there's no clear evidence that that's actually the case, at least not in any direct sense. France has very few trading ties or investment in any of the states in which they've been involved militarily in the past decade or so. So what is the driver? What's driving France's intervention in the region? It's pretty costly and is not always welcomed by the population. So what's driving it? Why France sticks to the region? There's an old French foreign minister. Well, I mean, he's, he's, he's dead now, but uh, he was uh, one of the foreign ministers of the French president, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. 
And right after the French launched an airborne attack on this town in southern Zaire, uh, Kolwezi, uh, which I think you were somewhat of an eyewitness to, he said that, I don't have the direct quote, but uh, I should find it because it's a delicious quote, but it explains, unfortunately, a lot. He said something along the lines that Africa is the only place where France can matter in the world anymore. With 500 men, she can change the course of history. It's the only place where she can change the course of history. That kind of expresses a sense that even though France is not the United States, it's not Russia, it's not capable of that level of great power aspiration. But there's one part of the world where it still can act in very decisive ways, and that's in large parts of Africa, particularly its former colonies. A lot of France's military interventions have, and there's been over 50 since 1960s, which makes France one of the world's most interventionist powers militarily. 50 military operation? 5-0, wow. Now, some of these are, you know, just to extract nationals or provide protection to a local president, but about 15 or so have been what you might call major expeditionary interventions involving, you know, more than a thousand troops involved in combat operations. But for the most part, they've been aiming to kind of stabilize local political orders that seem to be under threat, either by external forces. I mean, the Cold War, it was communism, even Anglo-Saxon or American imperialism, uh, which actually motivated French support for Rwanda uh, right before the genocide. And today, obviously, it's about jihadism. And there's this kind of grand narrative that's shared among French policymakers of all strikes. But also, this comes from the war on terrorism discourse in the United States as well, that there is this big multi-headed hydra monster of jihadism in the world, and it poses a major threat. And we have to fight it. And we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. The French have really internalized this since especially 2015 with the Charlie Hebdo attack and 2016 with the Bataclan attack. This has really entered the lexicon of French defense officials that this is a war against terrorism and we're good and they're bad. There's an ideological dimension. There's this kind of sentimental dimension, which I think shouldn't be underestimated. But there's also this kind of geopolitical dimension, which is that we, the French, can have a stabilizing role in a region where nobody else is willing to play that role. And we're capable of doing it. And by doing so, we're asserting our prestige and authority as a great power in the world, or a great middle power, as some former French presidents were fond of saying, and therefore our seat at the UN Security Council. So there's a kind of an affective element, there's a geostrategic element. And then, of course, this is not just the terrorism element, but the issue of having this big fear of a big migration from Africa to Europe, if there's a really big destabilization of the continent, has played a big role in French and broader European thinking about what needs to be done which I think tends to privilege stability over democracy. And that's always been the French priority. That's what I want to ask, because you've described well the engagement on the military side. But what we see across the Sahel, just like we see across the entire continent, is that people have greater democratic aspirations now, no less than anywhere else in the world. How does French navigate those two demands demand for stability, which tend to speak more to the relationship with the state. Because the stability defined by the state can look quite different from the stability of the populations. How well is French navigating these lines? Well, I think they've made it very clear where they stand on the question of stability. That stability is a stable ruling class or leadership that is not threatened by its military or not threatened by jihadist groups or not threatened by any kind of rebellion that can stay in power and ensure some baseline level of security in the country. And their classic model of this is Chad, where Idris Deby, and until his death last year, was in a lot of ways your model dictator. I mean, he was terrible at home, very repressive, and the author of countless crimes against dissidents and some ethnic minorities. But at the same time, he prevented the spread of conflicts from spreading over into his own country. And he contributed troops to French efforts elsewhere, in Mali especially, and now with MINUSMA, with the UN peacekeeping mission. And he sent troops to northeastern Nigeria to help fight Boko Haram. 
And he's seen as a real positive, well, now the current traditional regime under his son is seen as in a similar light. Without these stable strongmen rulers, you're going to have state collapse, civil war, spread of jihadism, and you're not going to have democracy anyway, so why bother trying to promote it? Let's just support these strongmen dictators. Or if it's a democratic political order nominally, like it was in Mali, you know, at least try to ensure that this doesn't spin out of control and hope that the presence of our troops there will prevent uh, any kind of internal political destabilization. And as we've seen, that doesn't, you know, th- that kind of calculus doesn't always pan out. But the question then is, you know, as an American, you obviously have uh, a side to that as well. The U.S. has been involved in the region as well. But the U.S. often presents a different brand. Africans look to America as, you know, democracy, transparency, good governance, innovation. There's a, a value proposition that everybody around the world at see when they look at America. It may not be perfect, but that's the brand, you know, in the same way that you just described the French brand. It's military operations, military operations, military operations. Stability. Stability, yes. Stability in the form of military intervention. So how do you assess U.S. engagement? If you know this, how do Africans in the region look at the U.S.? Because the U.S. is almost acting like an extension of the French in the region. Is that your reading of it? Or if not, what do you see and how the U.S. can be a better partners, not just to the French, but to the Africans themselves? Yeah, it is a funny inversion of roles where the U.S. really has taken a backseat. And it's probably better that way in a lot of ways. I think one of the fundamental problems, even with American engagement, is that there tends to be an emphasis in the security dimension, because this is the biggest geopolitical issue, and it fits into funding priorities for counterterrorism and de-radicalization and CBE and that kind of thing, and security assistance. And there's huge markets for that. The U.S. presence there more or less follows the French conceptual lines. I mean, yes, there's more emphasis, at least in terms of our public-facing narratives about you know democracy and human rights. Even the French say these things. I mean, they're not completely insensitive to... But they don't invest as much in those as the Americans well, do. No, for sure. But at the same time, what has the U.S. done in Chad to promote human rights? I think American policymakers, it seems to me based on public pronouncements and what I've seen reported elsewhere, that the general thinking within the American defense establishment and within the policymaking community is sort of follows the same line as the French. Like, okay, fine, Debbie might not be great, and we prefer a democratic transition in Chad, and we're going to say that. But if we don't have Debbie son, the Debbie Fees, uh, the Debbie Jr., what is the alternative? Could it be worse? I was really struck by the UN ambassador's fulsome praise of Debbie after his death. It wasn't just a perfunctory statement and kind of announcing condolences after the death of a president. There's fulsome praise for this guy. He's been a bloody dictator for 30 years. You mean the U.S. US ambassador to the U.N.? Yeah. A lot of us observers of American or French African policy were, were a bit puzzled by this because it really sends the wrong message. It sends a message that the U.S. really does stand for stability over democracy, even if we say the opposite. There's kind of two things here. One is if the U.S. wants to be a better partner regionally, it needs to de-emphasize the security dimension and has to be careful about providing security assistance in countries or areas where the governance of the security sector is simply not focused on things like human rights or with clear rules of engagement that prevents violence against civilians, which are themselves major drivers of jihadist recruitment or armed group recruitment. Generally, security assistance has not had a great record in the Sahel in terms of actually translating into more effective local militaries. There's a whole host of reasons for that. But the U.S. is just one security provider, and it's not even the largest. I think de-emphasizing that dimension and maybe focusing on potentially profitable economic linkages or improving African access to American markets, agricultural markets, I'm not an economist, but there are a lot of economic grievances that Africans have about the United States, particularly subsidized agriculture. There are probably ways to improve that dimension in the relationship. 
Do you think the Sahel Alliance is one such venue that can help the U.S. adjust its relationship with those countries? Conceivably, the U.S. generally doesn't prioritize African issues ever for any reason whatsoever. The times when the U.S. has prioritized African issues usually been when there's been a geopolitical crisis, like during the Cold War. And then the U.S. starts arming armed groups and that sort of thing, or supporting dictators with, you know, predictably nasty consequences. There are alternative ways to engage with the continent. And I think the sense is, even with the Sahel Alliance, I think the sense among African leaders, without generalizing too much, is that for the United States, Africa's low down the priority list. And the United States is one potential partner among many for any particular given project they like to engage with. If they want international investment, maybe they'll try to look to American companies, but why not also Chinese companies or European companies? There's no particular reason to privilege the United States over anybody else. And to be fair, if we make our relationship with Africa all about competing with other countries, that has been a problem in the past and that could be a problem in the future. You know, it has potentially counterproductive consequences and probably shouldn't be the thrust of our Africa policy. Thank you for those insights, Nathaniel. Turning to the current situation of the war in Ukraine, which I suppose will be draining resources from the European Union, and many of these actors in the Sahel are members of the European Union, the United States itself is very much at the forefront of this conflict in Ukraine. How do you see that shifting Western engagement in the region and the security? You're absolutely right. This is going to probably divert, first and foremost, humanitarian aid resources or other kinds of aid resources away from Africa, maybe less so from the US than it will from Europe. So European aid budgets are generally set in advance and they'll have to be reallocated and will be allocated directly to the Ukrainian conflict. And I know lots of aid agencies right now are very concerned about the medium-term impact of this on their operations. That's one thing. The other issue is grain prices or other kinds of food prices or energy prices, which were rising very quickly before the conflict began and, and now are set to rise a lot higher. And this is going to have a lot of impact on countries that import fair quantities of food, even if they're not importing directly from Ukraine or Russia, which some countries like Egypt imports a huge amount of its grain from Ukraine and Russia. But even if they're not, they're going to be affected by this because of the price booms in the markets. And there could conceivably be room for the United States to act as a market stabilizer. By doing what? How does the U.S. act as a market stabilizer? Making a concerted effort to increase food exports, particularly to the continent, perhaps even increasing aid money to help African countries buy or import U.S. grain or other food products if they need them. Even the global market as a whole, by increasing exports, at least everything else being equal, that should stabilize prices. How do you think that the Russians will be affected? They also have a presence there, particularly to the Wagner Group. Yes, this is where there's a lot of murkiness around how this might affect things. So there's this kind of two, well, at least two possibilities. One is it will reduce the ability of Wagner to effectively operate in the areas that it operates, and they'll be drawing down its presence. There have been some reports, although very, very much unconfirmed, that a number of Wagner personnel in the Central African Republic have actually left to go to Ukraine. Maybe this is an impact in that sense. The other kind of worst scenario is that they double down on resource extraction because of the sanctions regime and the necessity of the Russian government to find any means possible to acquire foreign exchange. There's no way in which the diamond mines in Central African Republic or gold mines in Mali could provide more than a drop in a bucket to service Russian needs. It's maybe more than nothing, and maybe they'll try to double down on their control over these resources. It's hard to say. It also may be that they'll act in more destabilizing ways as a way to kind of counteract the NATO engagement against Russia. But since the French have already left Mali, it's hard to see how this would work. They haven't left Mali, but they're in the process of leaving Mali, how this would work in practice. But yeah, there's, there's too much fluidity at the moment to really make a clear prediction. Okay, in many so cases, is, I think a lot depends on the battlefield in Ukraine. Okay, so the situation is very fluid and murky, as uh, to use your word, as you said earlier. Before we conclude, we always do this on this program, is to talk about the gap. We mind the gap on the program. 
So the gap here is simply there is the perception of the region and the situation and there is the reality of the situation. Where is the gap? What does the gap look like in the Sahel? Where is our perception not meeting the reality on the ground? And if you're the magic wand, what will you do about it? Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a tall order. Uh, I suppose you're talking about the American perception or... The world perception, the world, the world perception, perception, the reality. Okay. You have studied the region more than all of us here. So... Well, one thing is something that I touched on earlier, which is the fact that lots of foreign observers, particularly in governments, maybe not researchers, tend to have a very simplified view of what's driving conflicts in the Sahel and elsewhere. There's a complexity to it, which is not necessarily amenable to external policy solutions. And I think that's my main takeaway of spending the past decade and a half researching French security policy is that deliberately or not deliberately, they can do a lot of harm. But there's actually substantial limits in terms of what they can positively contribute towards things like democratization and stabilization in ways that are that sustainably benefit the most amount of people. Sometimes the best approach is just focus on the margins. And having a big security presence is not productive. And I would argue, and I've argued before in, in a recent article I wrote in War on the Rocks, I think the French presence was more destabilizing than it was stabilizing. And that's something that needs to be, I think, understood by Western policymakers, that sometimes the more you emphasize security, the less security you're going to get. And that's because of complex conflict environments and regional states that are themselves fairly abusive towards populations in their peripheries. There's only so much we can do about that. Well, Nathaniel Kinsey-Powell, thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward to continue reading your analysis. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mamba. Enjoy being here. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. <laughs>